1: You got a dead body, Inspector. I may be able to help with that.
0: This winter, all your favourite detectives are streaming on BritBox. Don't miss exclusive new seasons of Death in Paradise. There must be something we've missed. Vera.
1: It wasn't an
0: accident, was it love? Father Brown. What did he look like? And more. Once you start investigating, you won't want to stop. We're done when I say we're done. Stream your favourite detectives, only on BritBox. Start a free trial at brickbox.com.
2: There are all kinds of mass murderers roaming around in the world. You have the type who shoot up offices because they're disgruntled, those who shoot up Walmart because they're racist, and the handful who convince disciples to drink poisoned Kool-Aid to satisfy their delusions of grandeur, and so, so many more. Of this strand of psychopath, the family annihilator might be the most shocking of all. They kill multiple family members, one right after the other, in an indefensible act called family side. These grisly murders always leave us searching for an explanation. After the FBI's profiling efforts began and psychologists started studying mass murderers, we learned a lot about who these killers are and what motivates them. Family annihilators are usually white men. They often have a history of abuse, whether physical, emotional, sexual, or a combination of the three. Their crimes are premeditated. They think about what they're gonna do and how they're gonna do it. Their killing sprees are most likely to happen when they have access to a gun. In the case of Charlie Lawson, it was multiple guns. On a cold day in 1929, Charlie used an assortment of firearms to massacre seven members of his family before finally turning the gun on himself. Ninety years later, we're still searching for a reason why. Nobody knows. But there are an awful lot of theories, and some are as gruesome as the crime itself. I'm Courtney E. Smith, and you're listening to Songs in the Key of Death. This is the story of the Lawson family murders, in which a dead man tells no tales. The Lawsons were sharecroppers. Charlie was the patriarch, and his wife of some 20 years was Fanny. After years of work, Charlie finally saved up enough to buy a tobacco farm near his brothers in Germantown, North Carolina, back in 1927. It came with a two small 200-year-old cabin where they lived with their seven children. Yeah. Charlie and Fanny had a big old family and a teeny tiny house. Marie was the eldest and she was 17. Then came Arthur, 16, Carrie, 12, Maybel, seven, James, four, Raymond, two, and baby Mary Lou was just four months old. All seemed well on the Lawson homestead. Well, until December 1929. Part of the family annihilator's profile is to pick an auspicious date for their crime, because linking it with a major event increases the significance. Maybe that's Father's Day or a wedding anniversary or their birthday. For Charlie Lawson, it was Christmas Day. Christmas morning at the Lawson farm started out with a cake. Marie got up early to bake something for the holiday. She made a raisin cake, but we'll get back to that. Charlie and Arthur went out hunting in the morning. Local reports say it snowed between six and eight inches that day, so it was an unusually white Christmas. Later on, Arthur wanted to do some more hunting with his cousin, but they were out of bullets. So the boys set off for town to buy some after Charlie told them he was out. Listener, he was not out of ammo. In the early afternoon, Carrie and Maybell decided to visit their aunt and uncle's nearby farm to wish them a Merry Christmas. What they didn't know is that their father was laying in wait about a quarter mile away in the barn where they dried tobacco. When the girls passed by, they became Charlie's first kills. He shot Carrie and Maybell before bludgeoning them to death. He didn't just leave the bodies out in the open, though. Charlie took them into the barn so they wouldn't be seen. Then he carefully positioned them. It's said that he placed stones under each of their heads, like grave markers. Does that sound dark and twisted, like the actions of someone who isn't well? Maybe, but it's par for the course. Arranging the bodies to make a presentation of their grotesque work is a hallmark for family annihilators. The Lawsons lived in a part of the country where hunting, for fun and for food, was commonplace. So it's possible no one even noticed the gunshots. And Fanny may not have thought twice when she saw Charlie walking back to the house with a gun or two, but she probably realized something was wrong when Charlie took aim at her. By then, it was too late. Fanny was found on the porch, dead from a shotgun blast to the chest. Marie was next. Her body was found inside, beside the fireplace, also shot through the chest. The clock in the house froze at 1.25 p.m. when she was killed. A neighbor boy was there when the two women were attacked. He ran from the Lawson house back to his own, where he told his family what was happening. But Charlie's killing spree was almost over. Next, he went after James and Raymond, the toddlers. Some say he bludgeoned the two boys to death, while others say he shot them. The last to die was his infant daughter, Mary Lou, who he bludgeoned with the butt of his gun. When the bodies were found, they were all lying with pillows under their heads and hands folded across their chests as if they were in a deep sleep. It seems like that has to signify something. Did he want them to be comfortable? In Charlie's mind, were they happier and safer? Now that they were dead. Later that day, Charlie's brother, Elijah, and his son stopped by for a Christmas visit. Instead, they found a horrifying scene. The police were rounded up and someone went to get Arthur, still at the store buying ammunition. Charlie, on the other hand, was gone. He took off and was hiding out in the woods with the family dogs, who remain innocent of any crime. They were very good dogs. Hours later, around 5 p.m., a gunshot echoed out. Police and neighbors followed the sound. There they found Charlie, dead from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. He spent those hours pacing around a tree, weighing his options. In his pockets, the police found two notes. Neither formed a complete thought or revealed anything about why he did it. One was unfinished and read, trouble can cause. The other simply said, nobody to blame. After they found Charlie's body, the book was pretty much closed on the Lawson family slayings. The suspect was dead. There's not a lot of official information about why Charlie Lawson killed his family. We didn't know as much about mental illness and mass killers back then. But there's a whole hell of a lot of speculation, gossip, and conjecture that has lived on with this story. The first theory to explain it is a brain injury. Sometime before the murders, Charlie had an accident with a pickaxe-type tool. He hit himself in the head with it. But the idea that brain damage would explain all this was debunked by Dr. Spotswood Taylor, brother of Stokes County Sheriff John Taylor. Spotswood heard about the murders while he was home for the holidays from his internship at Johns Hopkins Medical Center in Baltimore. He helped the local coroner with the inquest and volunteered to have Charlie's brain examined. Their autopsy found no evidence that Charlie suffered a traumatic brain injury. So sorry if you wanted this to be an open and shut case. It's not. Then there's a motive that gets unfairly shrugged off, in my opinion. Money. Ready to elevate your home? Picture this. Central heating, a cozy fireplace, or your dream walk-in closet. Build a backyard oasis, go green with solar panels, or start a business. It's all possible with Figure's Home Equity Line of Credit. Unlock up to $400,000. Apply online in five minutes. Funding in as little as five days. Head to figure.com and transform your home. Figure Lending LLC DBA Figure. Equal Opportunity Lender. NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. As you'll recall from history class, there was another inauspicious event in 1929, Black Tuesday. The stock market crashed just two months prior. If Charlie was having financial issues with the farm already, the crash could have set him off. Financial distress is a known risk factor for family annihilators, usually combined with some other mental health issues, including depression and feelings of worthlessness. They call it suicide by proxy when the swirl of darkness leads a killer to think that the only way to save their family is by exterminating them. One creepy artifact remains, the Lawson's family portrait, which they took in Winston-Salem just weeks before the murders. Charlie organized a trip for everybody into the city to buy new outfits and have the picture made, and it was his Christmas gift to the family. The image is haunting to look at now. No one's smiling. And sure, that was the style in photos back then, but it makes them look all dead-eyed and miserable. It's also unsettling because it is so hard to look at those kids knowing what a tragic end awaits and how soon it's gonna come. Marie and Arthur stand shoulder to shoulder in the back row of the photo next to Charlie and Fanny, with the four younger children seated on a bench in the front. Fanny holds the baby tightly in her arms. Arthur, he's already bigger than his father, taller, with a larger build. Marie is the only one looking straight into the camera. It makes it feel like she's looking right at you. The point of telling you about this is to say, It was unusual for a family of their position to buy all-new clothes at a city store and take a portrait. It was an expensive treat. Some reports say Charlie spent all of the family's money on that, taking his last bit from the bank just before he killed everyone. Family annihilators tend to think of their family as property. Since most are men, when they feel their control over the family unit is threatened, they act out. It is the quintessential example of toxic masculinity. If he can't take care of them, what use is he? And what reason do they have to go on? There's one more theory that people just love to entertain. It comes to us courtesy of a book from 1990 by the father and daughter team of Bruce Jones and Trudy Smith called White Christmas, Bloody Christmas. Yes, seriously, that's the title. Clearly, they're paragons of nuanced storytelling and stick to verifiable facts. White Christmas, Bloody Christmas was printed in a small press run, and it's a confusing mishmash of first-person storytelling with no sources noted and conversations with locals about their recollection of the event. It's hard to tell what's fact and what's fiction, and frankly, it's just bad true crime writing. It's enough to make any editor with a red pin get an itch. The amateur historians behind it printed a depraved story of incest told to them by a Lawson family cousin, Stella Bowles. Stella said Charlie was abusing Marie and got his daughter pregnant. According to Stella, Fanny discovered the pregnancy shortly before the murders and told Stella's aunt the ugly truth. In a 2006 follow-up book by Smith, The Meaning of Our Tears, A friend of Marie's also said that Marie admitted she was pregnant with her father's child just weeks before the massacre. But there's a big issue. Marie's autopsy showed no pregnancy. Is it possible the local coroner kindly omitted this information from the autopsy report? If Charlie's brothers asked to keep it quiet, I suppose the coroner could have obliged. It's not... Impossible, but it is unlikely. Back then, people wanted to know what Charlie's motive was just as much. It seems doubtful they would have covered this up. Even the authors of the book find the incest story hard to believe. In an interview with the Most Notorious podcast, Smith said, quote, To this day, I can't tell you 100%. I can only tell you what people told us and that's the way I wrote it. Now, for you sleuths at home, this is not how journalism works. Ideally, the claim would have come from the abuse survivor. Obviously, that isn't possible in this case. Journalists prefer to have some evidence, especially for a claim this old. If Marie's cousin or friend wrote about their conversations in a diary or a letter after Marie made her confession, or told another friend who could confirm the conversation, that would be something. The claim would be corroborated, but it's not. Sexual abuse, either as a victim or a perpetrator, is a possible motive in family side, although it's rare. It's an appealing story because it makes everything easier to rationalize. If Charlie abused his daughter, then we can just say, oh, well, this man was troubled and he's troubled in a way I could never be. It makes the story safer to tell because it couldn't happen to us. But I don't buy the incest story and I don't think you should. The most sensational reason isn't necessarily the most likely reason. So it goes without saying that this crime was the talk of Stokes County of North Carolina, of all Appalachia. It even made the front page of the New York Times under the headline, Crazy Farmer Kills Wife, Six Children, which, yeah, that sums it up. They say 5,000 people attended the funeral, and it caught the attention of a local songwriter named Kid Smith, Walter to his mother, who wrote a ballad about it. By March 1930, a mere three months later, Smith and the Carolina Buddies recorded The Murder of the Lawson Family in New York City for Columbia Records. In the podcast Deadly Secrets, The Lawson Family Murder, bluegrass enthusiast Kenny Rohr says it became one of the label's best-selling hillbilly singles of the year. That's what they used to call country music, hillbilly. It moved more than 8,000 units, even as the Depression was starting. The song was re-recorded in the next year by a few other local groups like the Red Fox Chasers and the E.R. Nace Singers. But the definitive version can be found on An Evening Long Ago, a live recording by the Stanley Brothers from 1956. It's a lot more polished, as one would expect from Ralph and Carter Stanley, and it almost sounds like a hymn. They suck the darkness right out of the whole thing, focusing on a single question. Why? The song wasn't the end of the strange Lawson family legacy, though. The postscript to this unsettling story is that Charlie Lawson's brothers left the house open to visitors, charging Looky-Loo's 25 cents to walk through the still-blood-stained house. They sold pamphlets, photos, and sodas to the crowds who just couldn't get enough. The makeshift museum was open for five years. Five years! They did it to raise money so Arthur could keep the farm, since he was now solely responsible for the mortgage. They left Marie's Christmas cake, iced and decorated with raisins, under glass in the kitchen, preserved along with everything else as a horrible reminder of the darkest Christmas there ever
0: was. Meet all your health goals from the comfort of your home. Get free same-day local delivery or fast free delivery nationwide with code WONDERY today at Squeezed.com. So, thanks for listening
2: to this particularly dark episode of Songs in the Key of Death. For more on the Lawson family murders, please see our show notes. Especially helpful in putting this script together were a review of the case 90 years later from the Greensboro News and Record, and Taylor Oathote's honors thesis on family annihilators for SUNY Albany. We also reference theories put forth in a pair of books written by M. Bruce Johnson and Trudy J. Smith. Now, get out your cake covers and dust off your search party boots because we've got Bonnie Prince Billy and Nathan Salzberg with their take on The Murder of the Lawson Family.
1: It was on last Christmas evening a snow was on the ground in his home in North Carolina where this murderer he was found his name was Charlie Lawson and he had loving wife but we'll never know what caused him to take his family's life they say was a great surprise he killed six children and his wife and then he closed their eyes and another
2: Nevermind Media. This is Songs in the Key of Death, a series about murder ballads and the true tales that inspired them. You can find extended liner notes with all of our research, sources, playlists, and links at nevermind.fm death. This episode was written by me, your host, Courtney E. Smith. Our executive producers and editors are Sean Cannon and Melissa Locker. Sound design is by Sean Cannon and Madeline McCormick. John Dufalo is our session engineer. Score for this episode was provided by Madeline McCormick with additional music from Kojin Toshiro. The version of The Murder of the Lawson Family you just heard was arranged and performed by Bonnie Prince-Billy and Nathan Salzberg, mixed by Zach Riles and mastered by Paul Oldham. And our theme song is by Blood Red Sun. If you like our show, please leave us a five-star rating and a review and tell a friend about us especially if they love music and murder. Hearing about murder, that is. We'll see you next time.